0: All right, let's get into this. We are in our all-in challenge. We have been working our way through the book of Malachi. And so in Malachi 1, we learned about honor and respect. That that's really the key to the all-in challenge is how much we honor and respect God. Last week, we went really deep uh, into biblical history as we learned about God's covenant with Levi. And we learned that Levi and Simeon were both cursed. But only Simeon experienced the fullness of the curse. Why didn't Levi experience the fullness of the curse? Because at key moments in history, Levi was willing to go all in. And because they were willing to go all in, God redeemed them from the curse and made covenant with them. And I believe that God is making covenant with us today, and he has redeemed us from the curse of sin. And because we're willing to go all in with him, uh, he wants us to have the same attitude as the tribe of Levi, which is what? I love the church so much, I want to protect it from sin, and I want to see the church become everything God intended it to be. Right? God wants the church to be a holy bride, spotless, without sin, ready to receive Jesus as the bridegroom when he returns. And he wants us to be passionate about that. And so today we're gonna continue on in Malachi and we're gonna continue to look at this idea of covenant, but what we see in chapter three is we see a shift. Whereas chapter one and chapter two was a whole lot of scolding, right? There was a whole lot of reprimanding. Suddenly in chapter three, there is a shift. And what that shift is, is God preparing to shift to the new covenant, the covenant of grace under Jesus, right? Because we know that the book of Malachi was the last prophetic book that made the canon of scripture before Jesus came. And so this is the shift that God is preparing us to move into a season of grace, to move into a season where God wants to transform us from the inside out. Whereas in the old covenant, it was from the outside in. Amen? So let's talk about this. Let's check out your notes. You can find your notes in your bulletin. You can find them attached to this video on our website, or you can find them attached to the podcast if you're listening to this audio. And in the notes, here's our big picture point today. This is what we're going to go after. Repentance and refining are the keys to living under an open heaven. Faithfulness to the tithe and the offering is a reflection of our repentant and refined hearts. You see, today we're going to look at Malachi 3.10, which we know is one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible when it comes to tithing. But I don't want to just look at Malachi 3.10. I want to look at the whole passage because I believe the whole passage gives us a greater understanding of the context of what it means when God says, test me in this and see if I will not open up the floodgates of heaven. I don't know about you, but I want to live under an open floodgate of heaven. And so I want to make sure that I've got it right because I don't want anything to close that floodgate. And so the title of today's message is Knowing Where to Strike knowing where to strike because if you've been reading the test me book there's a story in the test me book about this town that their electric grid went down the whole town lost power so nobody could do anything there was no productivity there was no movement because all the electricity was down their local electricians could not figure out what was wrong so they had to call the big city to get an electrician to come in and so this electrician comes in and he comes into the main power center And he's got just an old-fashioned hammer. And he's working his way down some lines, just tapping with the hammer and listening. And just tapping with the hammer and listening. And finally, after going back and forth down the main line, he comes to one spot, and he just hauls off, and bam, hits that spot with his hammer. And wouldn't you know it, the entire power grid comes back on all in a moment. The town gets back to normal. Everything's fixed. The next week, they get an invoice in the mail from the electrician for $100,000. And the, the, the town council says, this is ridiculous. We're not going to pay this. You were only here for five minutes. The only tool you brought is a hammer. How could you charge us $100,000? So the electrician writes back, well, let me explain the bill. $5 is for striking with the hammer. is for knowing where to strike. Right? It doesn't matter what tool you have. If you don't know where to strike, we can't get things flowing. And so today, we want to know where to strike. What is it going to take to get things flowing? What is it going to take to keep the floodgates of heaven open and that we live under the blessings of an open heaven? We want to know where to strike. So let's go after this. Malachi chapter 3. We'll put it up on the screen, or if you got your Bibles, you can follow along in your Bibles. Verse 1, God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What is God declaring right here? He's declaring the coming of the Messiah. He's declaring the shift from the covenant with Levi that he talked about in chapter 2 to the new covenant of grace in Christ Jesus. Right? So, who's the messenger that's going to clear the way? John the Baptist. Right? We know that John the Baptist is the one who would be the voice who would make the path straight in the wilderness that would prepare the way of the Lord. Then who is the messenger of the covenant that's going to come to his temple? Jesus. So God is saying there is a Messiah coming. And when that Messiah comes, something new is going to happen. So let's continue on. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings and righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years." Right? So God is talking about there's going to be this new covenant, and this new covenant is not going to be based on following rules and regulations. It's going to be a covenant that's based on a purified and a transformed hearts. Right? You see, under the old covenant, people did good works to be made right with God. Under this new covenant, we're going to do good works because we're already made right with God. Right? We're not doing good works to be made right with God. We're doing good works because we've already been made right with God. How are we being made right with God? It says because when we come to Him, there's going to be a refining. There's going to be this refining process. There's going to be this purification process, right? We understand that refining Is the process by which metal is heated to such a temperature that all of the impurities are burned away and all you're left with is a pure metal. So what do we know about the refining process in your notes? First off, we know that refining can be a painful thing. It can be a painful thing, right? That's why God says, who can stand it? Who can endure it? It's going to be difficult. It's going to be painful. He says it's going to involve fire, which that's pretty straightforward, right? Fire is an all-consuming, painful thing. But he says it's also going to involve the fuller's soap. The fuller's soap, the fuller being the laundryman. It's going to involve the laundryman's soap. Well, how is laundry soap a painful thing? Well, you got to think about how did they do their laundry back then? They didn't have washing machines. What they had is they would get the soap into the clothes, and then what would they do with the clothes? They would rub them back and forth over a rough surface. Why? Because they're trying to get that soap deep into every fiber of the cloth so that the soap can draw out all the grease and the dirt and get it out of the fiber, So sometimes the refining process might feel like you're getting rubbed back and forth over a rough surface. And you're like, God, why is this happening? What is going on? And God says, I'm trying to get my soap deep within the fibers of your soul so that I could refine you deep from the inside out. Right? Refining is a painful process, but it's a process we have to submit to in the Lord right? Jeremiah 2.22 says this, although you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me, declares the Lord God. We can't cleanse ourselves. You can use all the soap you want. You can't cleanse yourself. But then look at the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6.11, such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. There is a refining process, and it can be painful. Fire is burning things away. Soap is getting rubbed deep into our fibers, and it's difficult But it's necessary. But listen, refining isn't just a painful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Because in verse 3, it says, He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. Right? This is not just an indiscriminate fire that is consuming everything in its path. No. It's a refiner. It's an artisan. He's sitting, and he's doing the handiwork of the refining. Right? God is not just taking you from difficulty to difficulty. God is not just doing painful things for the sake of painful things. No. God is doing something beautiful. He is the artisan that is working on every part of your life, sitting and purifying the silver of your life. All right? Listen. We took uh, Hannah, our youngest, we took her to get her ears pierced last weekend, right? So we're down at Claire's at the mall, and they've got the special chair, the chair you can only sit in if you're getting your ears pierced, right? And and so they get in the chair, and of course they have two ladies doing it because they want to pierce both ears at the same time so that they don't know what's coming when, when the second ear comes, right? And so they get everything ready. They got both guns ready. She's sitting in the chair. And what's the last thing they say? Hold still. Right? Hold still. We don't want you to jerk. We don't want you to slide out of the chair. We don't want you to move your head because something catastrophic might happen. But listen, here's the point. It's going to hurt for a second, but then there's going to be something beautiful. You're going to have these earrings. It's going to be wonderful. You just got to hold still. Right? That's what God is saying to us. We come to him, right? We give our lives to Christ, and we get to sit in a chair that's reserved only for people who give their lives to Christ. But as we're sitting in the chair, God says, hold still. It's going to hurt. But don't worry. Something beautiful is going to come out of it. The German theologian, Gerald Klingbeil, Klingbeil, I don't know how to pronounce it. He said this. God's refining of his people always involves a concrete goal or purpose. Something precious will result from the process. Come on, when God does refining, he does it for an exact reason. Something precious is going to come out of the process. There's a purpose behind it. There's a result. And what we read in verse 4 and we've got in your notes is this. The result is pure worship before the Lord pure worship before the lord remember all the scolding from chapters one and two what did god say he said i'm not going to receive your offerings i'm not going to receive your worship because it's not coming from a pure heart because you're not giving uh what is expected uh because you've got wrong motives because you've got hidden sin and idolatry in your life for the first two chapters he says i'm not going to receive it then in chapter three he says now Now I'm going to receive the worship. Now I'm going to receive the offering. What's the difference? Now they've gone through the refining process. Now they're worshiping the Lord with a pure heart. Now they're coming before him with pure motives. There is a refining process that God does that is a part of this new covenant of grace. Let's continue on. Verse 5 Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and against the idolaters, and against those adulterers, I should say, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppose the wage earner and his wages, the widow and the orphan. And those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Come on, God makes this declaration I do not change. God is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the old covenant is the same as the God of the new covenant. God does not change. And listen, he says, Because I do not change, O sons of Jacob, you have not been consumed. What is he talking about? He keeps his covenant promises. God always keeps his promises. He says, Listen, Israel, the only reason you have not been completely destroyed and wiped from the face of the earth because of your sin is because I made covenant promises with you that you would always endure. And God says, I will always keep my promises because I do not change. Come on, we serve a God who always keeps his covenant promises with us, every word comes to pass. But in verse 5, he says, listen, in the midst of this beautiful picture of grace, in the midst of this refining, in the midst of this new covenant, he says sin is still sin. Sin is still sin. I don't change. Right? In verse 5, he lists off some very specific ones, right? Sorcery and witchcraft is still a sin. Adultery, sexual sin is still a sin. Right? Oppressing Or swearing falsely, oppressing the wage earner, the widow, and the orphan, turning away refugees. Come on, that might change our political stances when we hear God say that turning away refugees is a sin. Not fearing God. God says sin is still a sin. Too many people have taken the message of grace to say, I can do whatever I want and God will be okay with me, and God is saying, no, I don't change. I'm holy, and sin is still sin, and even in this beautiful picture of grace, sin will still be judged, so what do we have to do? We have to repent, and he always moves when we repent. God says, return to me, and I will return to you. God says, listen, I'm not the one that left. I'm not the one that moved away. You are, But every time you return to me, I will return to you. Every time you repent and turn away from your sins, we'll get you back in that chair. And we'll go through the refining process. And we're going to make something beautiful. And your life is going to matter. And you're going to do great things for the kingdom of God. So when the people questioned in what way they could return to God, right? So God says, return to me, and I will return to you. And they say, in what way should we return to you? God's answer was faithfulness in the tithes and the offerings. And this goes back to our main point, that I believe that tithing and offering, this flow of generosity in our lives, is an outflow of the refining process that God has done within us. If we're stingy, If we're not cheerful givers, if we're not obedient to the tithe, if we're holding back, that means more refining needs to be done. He says, but what is the outflow of repentance? God says tithes and offerings. We're picking it up in verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So God is declaring that withholding the tithes is robbing from him. Why? Because it's holding back the church from advancing the kingdom of God. Going back to this covenant with Levi, right, what do we have? The tribe of Levi, just like Simeon, was cursed with landlessness, Simeon experienced the fullness of that curse. The tribe of Levi did not. Now, here's the interesting thing. They still remained landless. But remember, they were given cities and pasture lands in every region of Israel when the land was divided up. The land did not belong to them. They had to trust in God to provide for them. And then what did they live off of? They lived off of the tithe which means they had to trust God for their income, right? So the Levites had nothing that was their own. They had to trust completely in God. The Irish theologian Gary Millar paints this picture that Levi remaining landless in the land was actually a model for everyone to look to because Levi lived in a place of complete dependence on God And that's the place that God wanted everyone to live. And so Levi lived as a model within the land. And so Gary Millar's conclusion was this. If the Levites are neglected, which means the people are not giving the tithe. If the Levites are neglected, it's not simply a sign of disobedience, but a falling away from the relationship which the Levites themselves model. Listen, when we're living in a place of complete dependence on God, we have no problem being generous. We have no problem being obedient to the tithe. We have no problem being generous in the offerings. Why? Because it all came from Him anyway. And I live in a place of complete dependence on Him. But when the Levites are being neglected, when the tithe is being withheld, it's a sign that we have fallen away from that relationship of complete dependence on Him. So when we rob God of the tithe, the world is robbed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? When the church is fully functioning, the kingdom is advancing, the gospel is being preached, people are being discipled, and the great commandment is being fulfilled. When we withhold that, we are holding back the work of God. So what is God's conclusion? Now we get to the famous verse we've been talking about. Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruit of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Let's go back to verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Right? He says, bring the whole tithe, all 10% of our increase. Bring it into the storehouse. Now, in the old covenant, they didn't just tithe currency, right? They tithed all of their agricultural increase. So they needed a storehouse because people were tithing off their grain and the fruit of their trees and their oil and their wine and their livestock. They were bringing it all in. So they needed a storehouse. And so the temple physically had storehouses in it that they would bring all the stuff in and then they would distribute it to the Levites. They would distribute it uh, to the widows, to the poor, to those that had nothing. They would distribute it out of the storehouse. So in the Old Testament, it's really obvious what the storehouse refers to. It refers to actual rooms in the temple. In the New Testament, it's not quite so clear, right? My conviction has always been this. The storehouse is the church where you fellowship at. Right? The storehouse is the church where you fellowship at. In his book, G.F. Watkins refers to it as the place where you get fed. Right? Where are you going to go when you're in need? Where are you going to go when you need community? Where are you going to go when you need help, when you need prayer? That's your storehouse. Now, other people have different convictions, and I'm not going to argue with your convictions. But from my stance, the storehouse is the church. But you have to have a pure heart before God. And so if you have spent time seeking God, and, and you have a different definition of the storehouse, I'm not going to argue with you on that. I trust your heart. But if you're looking for guidance, that's the guidance that I'm going to give you. Amen? All right. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Why? So there may be food in my house. Why does there need to be food in his house? So the Levites could be taken care of. So the house could be taken care of. So the poor can be taken care of. So ministry can happen. Same reason today. Why do we bring the tithe into the storehouse? so that the church staff can be taken care of and continue advancing the ministry, so that the buildings and the land can be taken care of, so that uh, we can do ministry and serve the poor and preach the gospel and do great outreaches. Bring the tithe into the storehouse. And then God says, test me now in this. So, So here's the challenge. We have always read verse 10 in isolation, where God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and test me now in this. And so we assume, well, the test me now in this is referring to the tithe. But what if the test me now in this is referring to the context of the entire passage we've just been reading, which has been about repentance and refining? What if the test me that God is saying is not just bring the tithe? What if the test me that God is saying... Is have you given your life fully to Jesus? Have you repented of your life of sin? And have you sat in the chair and allowed God to refine you and bring something beautiful out of you so that you can serve him with a pure heart? What if that's what we're testing God with? And the tithe is just one part of that. Maybe I was just more excited about that than you guys were, all right? What if there's a bigger picture in this passage? That God is calling us to this place of repentance and refining. Listen, this is the only verse in the entire Bible where testing God is referred to in a positive way. Everywhere else in the Bible, testing God is referred to as a sin. Because it usually involved complaining, mumbling, backbiting, gossiping, arguing, not trusting God, doing things ourselves, right? Jesus was even tempted to test God and Jesus said, no way, I'm not going to test God. Right? So this is the only place in the Bible where testing God is referred to as a positive thing. And so is it referring just to the tithe, or is it referring to a lifestyle of repentance and refining? So God says, test me now in this, and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven. In your notes, that's the next blank, the floodgates of heaven. Let's talk about the floodgates of heaven. Other translations of the Bible might refer to it as the windows of heaven. That's why we were singing this powerful song today about open up the windows. We want to live with the windows open. Come on, we live in Kauai, right? Now, some of us have air conditioning, so we keep the windows closed because we like the air conditioning. But when you don't have air conditioning, you've got God's air conditioning, which is the trade winds, right? And you keep all the windows open because we want the trade winds to blow, right? We want the windows open. This same Hebrew word that refers to the floodgates of heaven is the same word from the story of Noah's day when God brought a flood to the earth, and it says that God opened the floodgates of heaven and flooded the earth. It's the same reference. So we know that this is an opening that brings a flood. Hallelujah. In 2 Kings chapter 7, we have this interesting story where Samaria is being sieged by the Aramaeans. And the siege has lasted so long that there is no food left, right? It's saying that even scraps were selling for top dollar. People were repaying ridiculous amounts of money just for some scraps of food. It got to the point where they were eating each other. I know that's gross, but it's in the Bible, all right? They were eating each other. And then Elisha the prophet comes, and he says to the king, this time tomorrow, food will be selling for pennies on the dollar, because food will be so abundant in this city. Now, you got to imagine, they've been under siege for months, maybe years. They have resorted to cannibalism. There is nothing left and this prophet shows up and says, in 24 hours, food is going to be so abundant that you're going to be selling it for pennies on the dollar. And one of the royal officers who was standing there actually mocks the prophet. Look at 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 2. It says, the royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? He's saying, man, even if there was windows of heaven that were open, this is impossible. There's no way that God could bless us this quickly. And then the prophet answered. Then he said, behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you won't eat of it. You don't get your part in it. This guy could not believe that there were windows of heaven big enough that God could do anything and bring an abundance of blessings so quickly that it would catch them off guard. Well, what happened? The next day, the entire Aramaean army was dead. They were able to gather all of the resources and supplies, and there was so much food, they were selling it for pennies on the dollar. Why? Because God can open windows of heaven. We want to live under open windows of heaven. We know that floods can come, and we know that promises of God could be answered quickly when we're under the open heaven. He says that I will pour out blessing so big that you cannot contain it. Let's talk about the overflowing blessing. This is not a prosperity gospel. Let me just make this abundantly clear. I believe this wholeheartedly. I believe that anything that you preach, you need to go anywhere in the world and preach it. Prosperity gospels don't preach when you're in villages in Africa and Asia where people are living in abject poverty. My son and I, this was a while ago now, this was about eight years ago, we went to Uganda. And we went out into the villages outside of Kampala, Uganda. And it was some of the the most difficult poverty I've ever seen with my own eyes. But what I experienced from those people was the greatest joy and the greatest love that I've ever experienced from any people in my life. People that had nothing but wanted so badly to have you come and sit with them in their home and just have relationship with you. And they would sit you down and they would say, teach me the Bible. I want to know the Bible. And they would make you welcome in their tiny little adobe huts and they'd brush all the cockroaches off the chair so that you could sit in the chair. I believe those people were living under open windows of heaven. Those people were blessed abundantly. It just wasn't with money. The overflowing blessing is the promise of God that you will always have more than enough. Now, we as Westerners, we want to apply it to money. But what if what God is saying is that you're always going to have more strength than you need? You're always going to have more love than you need. You're always going to have more community than you need. How about this? Your provision's going to be enough. And if your provision is more than enough, maybe that's because I want you to give more, not because I want you to be more comfortable. There's nothing wrong with being blessed with richness as long as you understand what the purpose of that wealth is. You're going to have more grace than you need. Right? That is the overflowing blessing. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 10 and 11. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality or generosity which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Listen, you're going to live under an open window of heaven and blessing is going to pour out in your life and it's going to be more than you can contain. So what happens when it's more than you can contain it spills out of you and it splashes onto others what did jesus say he said out of you will flow rivers of living water if it's flowing out of you that means it's flowing onto other people What if living under an open window of heaven is not about us being comfortable or us being wealthy or us getting every answer to prayer that we ever want? What if living under an open window of heaven is that we are so blessed that it's spilling out of us and it's touching everybody around us? And we reap a harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness, meaning we're bringing a lot more people to heaven with us because we allowed an open heaven to spill out of us and spill onto others. It produces thanksgiving to God. There are people praising and glorifying God. Why? Because the blessing on your life splashed onto them. Jesus pours out on us so that we can keep pouring out. We are blessed to give. We're blessed to give of our money. We're blessed to give of our love and our forgiveness. We're blessed to give of our time and our joy. We're blessed to give of our gifts and our talents. We're blessed to give. We live under an open heavens so that we can fulfill the purposes of God so that we can advance the kingdom of God and touch more lives. That's the open heaven. That's the overflowing blessing. I'm not hearing any amen, so I'm just going to trust that you're just enthralled with how amazing my teaching is. All right. Hallelujah. Then he says this, I will rebuke the devourer. Let's talk about rebuking the devourer. God says, I am going to speak, right? A rebuke is a spoken word. God says, I am going to speak against anything that tries to steal from you. Come on. God says, I'm going to speak against anything that tries to steal from you. Now, we know Jesus said, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So we know that the devourer is referring to Satan himself who wants to come and to steal from us. God says, I'm going to rebuke him. And listen, nothing, nothing can withstand the spoken word of God. So if God is going to speak against him, he can't come close to you. He can't steal anything from you. He can't take your promises. He can't take your inheritance. He can't take it. God says, I'm going to rebuke the devourer. Come on. This isn't just Satan. This is every curse spoken against you, right? This is everyone, anything, that wants to take things from you. When I was a youth pastor in Lake Havasu, Arizona, I had a a gift for broken and troubled kids. Right? I just, I had the most messed up looking youth group because God would just bring me all these kids that were just tormented and drug addicts and they'd been abused. And I had this one young man named Bud, and he came over to my apartment one time. This is when I was still a bachelor, so I just had a little one bedroom bachelor pad apartment. And this young man was so tormented spiritually. There was so much demonic oppression on his life. He lived in an abusive home. He watched his mom get the tar beat out of her. He was addicted to drugs and got in all kinds of trouble. And so uh, one night he couldn't stay at home. And I said, man, just come stay at my house. And so we're sitting in my living room late at night, and he is just tormented spiritually. And I told him, I said, here, you're safe. I said, you're in my house now. The devourer doesn't get to touch you so we talked late into the night and then we went to bed the next morning I got up and I said hey man how'd you sleep and he says I slept really good he said I felt so safe he said in fact I don't know if I was dreaming or I was awake he said but I woke up in the middle of the night and I went over to your sliding glass door and I pulled open the mini blinds and he said I could see the whole patio filled with demons and they couldn't get to me They couldn't get to me. Why? Because he was in my house. And in my house, the devourer was rebuked. It didn't matter how bad those demons wanted to touch that young man. They couldn't go against the spoken word of God. Come on, we can live in that place, in an open heaven, where the devourer is rebuked. And nothing can steal anything from you. And finally... He says, you will live in a delightful land. Let me get back to there. Verse 12, all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. Come on, can we imagine living in a delightful land? Can we imagine living in a place where other people want to live? And it's not because your life is perfect and pain-free, not because you don't have struggles and difficulties, but because in the midst of those difficulties, God keeps bringing beautiful things out of your life. And you live in such an abundance of joy and such an overflow of blessing that people can see you and say, you to live in a delightful place, I want to live there. And people don't want to live there because you have less problems than them. People want to live there because you have the same problems as them, and yet you have a joy and a peace that they can't seem to lay hold of. You're going to live in a delightful land. Come on, my prayer is that Kauai Bible Church is a delightful land where people want to be. It's a delightful place, and people want to be here because they find joy and peace here, because they find life and abundance here that they can't find anywhere else. And yeah, we got problems. Come on, we're all broken, messed up people. But can we live under an open heavens where there is a delight in our life that people want a part of? Thank you, Jesus. Let me have the worship team come back up today. Listen, the all-in commitment It's not about doing good things so that we can get God's attention. The all-in commitment is not about doing good things so that we can be right with God. It's not about following rules. Listen, this is not a set of rules. This is a commitment. This is a commitment to live a lifestyle before God. Listen, we're living the all-in lifestyle because God has already touched our lives. Because He's already loved us so much. That I can't think of anything I'd rather do than give everything to him. And so the invitation is this receive the gospel of grace. Receive the gospel of grace. Give your life to Jesus as Lord. And then when Jesus puts you in the chair, hold still. Let the refining happen. Don't squirm, don't pull back, especially don't get out of the chair. Come on, we've seen so many people get out of the chair. So many people have walked away from Jesus, walked away from the church, and are back living under the curse of sin because they weren't willing to sit in the chair. Don't get out of the chair. God says, hold still. It might hurt, but I'm producing something beautiful in you. I'm producing something pure in you. There is a holiness I'm producing in you that you could never produce in yourself. And out of that purity and that holiness and that righteousness, I am producing in you pure worship. I am producing out of you good works that are going to advance the kingdom of God. And then what do we do? We go all in. We give the tithe. We give our heart. We give our time. We give ourselves. And what happens? Revival. The kingdom of God advances. Lives are changed and transformed. Why? Because we're living under an open heaven. We're living under an open heaven. Pastor G.F. Watkins in his book said it like this. You can only experience God's continuing favor and success one way. If you've left his ways, repent, return, and obey God. It's that simple. Let's repent. Let's surrender ourselves to Jesus. Let's return to him. Let's sit in the chair. Let's give ourselves to the refining process. And then let's live a life of obedience to him, knowing that we'll live under this continuing open heaven where we'll have more than enough to face everything we need to face, and it will overflow and touch others, and we'll change lives. We'll advance the kingdom. Amen. Will you stand together with me? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, we cry out today for an open heaven. We cry out today for an open heaven. Thank you for your word, Lord, that in your word you have shown us where to strike. You have shown us. You have even dared us to the lifestyle that will open up the heavens. A lifestyle of repentance and refining and obedience. I pray, Lord, right now over every person that's hearing this message all of us together here at the church everyone on the live stream everyone in the digital campus everyone listening to this podcast i pray right now in jesus name that every one of us would live under the open windows of heaven lord would you open up the floodgates would you let the blessings come like a flood that they would fill us to overflowing and they would flow out of our lives like rivers of living water that your spirit and your blessings would touch everybody we come into contact with lord Oh, we want the the, the devourer rebuked in our lives, oh Lord. No more stealing. No more taking from us. No more living in fear of what we might lose. We want to live in a place where the enemy can't touch us. We want to live under that open heaven, Lord. So Lord, you have shown us where to strike. So Holy Spirit, right now, would you draw us unto the Father? Would you call us to a place of repentance and brokenness? We know what moves your heart, God. And it's not our talent, our fame, our good looks, our debonair personalities. It's our absolute brokenness and surrender. So, Lord, would you call us to that place? We give ourselves to you, Lord. Have your way. Do your refiner's work. I'll go through whatever I got to go through, God, because I want to be a powerful instrument in your hand. I want to touch and change lives. I want to see revival on Kauai and around the world. So Lord, do your work in us. I pray against anything that is causing us to fight against this draw to the Father. That's causing us to hold back from repentance. That's causing us to keep the gate closed. I pray against it in Jesus' name. Break us down, Lord, that there's nothing left but you. Break us down, Lord, to where we don't even have strength to keep the gate closed. Break us down, Lord, to where we're hungry for nothing but you. And then build back something beautiful, God, that can be used for your glory. That there will be a harvest of righteousness and much thanksgiving going up to you, Lord. Let this word do a profound work in our lives. You have dared us, God. You have tested us. So, Lord, we'll put you to the test. We'll live lifestyles of repentance and refining. And we'll just see, God, we'll just see how much goodness you can pour out. Hallelujah, Lord. Have your way. We pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.